This is Fair and Square, a podcast from Hudson Sandler. This is the Fair and Square podcast from Hudson Sandler. I'm Adam Batstone with the latest episode in this podcast series in which I'll be talking to a variety of people from different walks of life who are making a difference in business, science, media, the arts and to the world we live in. This is an opportunity to hear in more depth from those with experience, perspective or opinions that shape contemporary society. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Alistair Harris, Chief Executive of the Art Group, a social development company that focuses on mitigating the impact of conflict and instability globally, including the plight of refugees and the challenges of irregular migration and human trafficking. With a background in international diplomacy, both with the UK Foreign Office and the UN, Alistair was awarded an OBE in 2013 for his services to stabilising Lebanon. More recently, he's worked with multiple governments to provide research and data to help shape policy and design interventions in relation to some of the most challenging parts of the world. Our focus today will be in relation to his work and opinions on the question of the migration crisis here in the UK and further afield. So, Alistair, welcome to Fair and Square. Thank you very much. Good morning. So, last month, when I say last month, I'm talking about March of 2023, the country, UK, was very much fixated on a tweet by former England captain, football captain Gary Lineker, who likened government immigration policy to the language which was used by the Nazi Germany. His comment certainly put the debate around UK immigration policy in the spotlight. But Alistair, what was your view of that whole situation? Do you think he was right in what he said? And, and maybe more importantly, was, was it a useful contribution? I think Gary Lineker's comments on the illegal migration bill were designed to be provocative, and they certainly were. The challenge, of course, when you mention a comparison to Nazi Germany is extremely emotive from both sides of the spectrum. I think the image here, because we're talking about boat arrivals in the UK was of Jews being pushed back, trying to emigrate from Nazi Germany, and that led to perhaps some unhelpful comparisons of whether the migration crisis is analogous to uh, the actions of Nazi Germany. But I would say overall, he was uh, expressing a sentiment that's more widely shared in the country about whether uh, the current UK policy on immigration is fair, uh, is in line with our international obligations, and is in fact an illegal migration bill because it uh, is not consistent with the UK's international legal obligations. Do you think, or almost regardless of the rights or wrongs of what, what he said and the comparison he made, but just the mere fact of such a public, high-profile, and not really, first and foremost, a political figure talking about the subject is, is a good thing to get the wider population engaging with what is a very difficult subject? I think so, because I think this issue is one that requires nuanced conversation, data-driven rather than emotive responses. Um, my personal view is the subject of immigration, the control of free movement, has been seminal to the political debate in the UK since Brexit, given its centrality to the Leave campaign. But looking at actually 
the differences between irregular migration, asylum seekers, and, and, and the UK's humanitarian posture towards that, and our labour needs as a country post-Brexit, are very different issues. And I think what, what, what Gary Lineker was doing was saying, we can't conflate all of this into a sort of popularist response, a stop the boats campaign. I think Gary Lineker was saying that an authoritarian response, and I think that's one of the linkages to the Nazi analogy, is not an appropriate one to dealing with the subject which is underpinned by human suffering and people seeking refuge and therefore is not consistent with how most people in the UK feel about their own country and its values. So we're going to get into the details that you've touched on there a little bit further in a moment. I think it'd be useful for listeners if you could just explain, put a bit of flesh on the bone as to you know, what's the purpose of our group, how did it come to, into being, and, and maybe a bit more about your background and, and how come you're involved uh, as chief executive there. ARC is a social enterprise that I established essentially to try and address challenges that particularly our governmental clients face dealing with fragility and instability, uh, which is often the product of, of conflict or lack of social cohesion. So we as an organisation uh, try and use uh, qualitative and quantitative data, so evidence-driven approach towards designing interventions that address social ills or the impacts of conflict. So perhaps the easiest way of describing that is you know, we work as, a, as an organisation in Nigeria, for example, with the government and the National Agency for the Prohibition of Trafficking in Persons to reduce the risks of sexual exploitation of Nigerian women, child labour, right through to uh, to issues, for example, in Yemen, where we're looking at the effects of the war in Ukraine on food and water security, uh, the nexus between conflict and climate and how that's going to drive migration, which is perhaps something we can touch on later. And this approach of essentially research-informed evidence-based programming is designed to ensure that the UK and other governments deliver value for money for their taxpayers who are paying for overseas aid. And this is a particularly interesting topic in relation to UK aid spend, because obviously a very significant percentage of that now is spent uh, on refugee handling issues in the UK. So the hotel bill that Suella Braveman, the Home Secretary, was referring to in her video message that, that Gary Lineker responded to was talking about up to £7 million a day being spent on hotel accommodation for uh, asylum seekers in the UK. That's money that's not being spent overseas in the international aid budget because it's having to be re-diverted to the UK. What I'm inferring from what you're saying is what you're seeking to do with art is to try to address myths or claims and challenge it with, with data and, and more sort of rigorous facts. Is, is that a, a fair... It is, and I would say there's one other important trait that runs through what we do, which in the development literature is known as localization, which is essentially house issues within the communities that are impacted and seek solutions from them. And this is something I'll refer to back to on this podcast, which is to creating policies that demonise, criminalise uh, or other refugees is not asking refugees why they're here in the first place. We need to speak in Calais, uh, in Iran, in Pakistan, in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa to refugees to understand rather than simply roll out punitive measures that, that rely on a model of deterrence, which, uh, as we can discuss here, I think is, is not value for money for the UK and will not address the problem at source. So that, from our perspective, listening... Uh, and being humble enough to co-design and co-create approaches with those impacted by it, and trying to bridge legitimate government concerns over organised crime, serious organised crime in the UK, and the humanitarian uh, concerns of those seeking refuge. They are not an either-or. Uh, there is a middle ground which, by listening to each other and having an evidence base to what we do, can make more effective outcomes and therefore better value for money for the taxpayer. And the other part of my question was about your own 
background, your experience. I, I touched on work you've done in Lebanon, for which you received an OBE. But just give us a little sense of how you got here. You know, what is your sort of relevant experience which enables you now to be able to do the kind of work that you're doing? I'm smiling when you mentioned the OB for services to stability in Lebanon. Having just come from Lebanon last week and there's hyperinflation, a political crisis, no president, no government, and the municipal elections have been delayed. Um, yes. Um, so I would certainly claim not to be an expert in anything. It's more sort of falling off the tree and hit, hitting every branch on the way down. Uh, no, I, I, I began my original background was in political science and theology, of all things. And I was very interested in, in inter-ethnic and, and religious-based conflict. I spent a long time in the Balkans. I'm a Serbo Croat speaker. And was very interested in, in, in how... Uh, intrastate uh, intercommunal relations deteriorate and the, uh, the consequences of that. So when I came to found ARC as, as a vehicle to, and I often describe it as sort of a Star Wars bar of characters of, of former uh, diplomats, journalists, development workers, uh, largely drawn from the countries where we work. So my staff are, are Turkish and Syrian and Lebanese and Palestinian and Indonesian and Nigerian. That's the way it should be, that we could bring those holistic experiences to try and tackle some of the complex problems and increasingly I think this is important we realize around the world that no one is resolving conflicts they're managing them and I think the same will be the case of the migration crisis where we need to work within these problems to try and ameliorate and understand better rather than wait for the problem to end because the problems aren't going to end I think uh, there's a tendency now with a lot of uh, these wicked problems that have no immediate resolution to think that doing nothing is the best course of action, but doing nothing is also a conscious decision. And while we're doing nothing, others are doing something. So I think uh, we need to be more proactive, but as I say, taking as our locus a deep understanding of the issues through the eyes of those impacted will allow more effective responses. And that's essentially what I set up ARC to try and address. The issue which we can touched on at the beginning around Gary Lineker, his response to Swirla Breverman's video, obviously... A lot of the focus, you know, a lot of the way this issue is being viewed in the UK has stemmed from this policy decision by the UK government to essentially deport immigrants, as they say it, uh, to third-party countries, namely Rwanda in Central Africa. People who can follow the news will, will know that I don't think a single person has, has yet been deported. There have been various legal challenges around that. What I'm interested to hear from you, Alistair, is your perspective on this notion that you can take a a plan, a very specific plan, to take people from country A and essentially drop them in country B and, to all intents and purposes, wash your hands of them. I kind of feel I know what you're going to say, but how, how does that idea sort of come about what makes the government think that it's a good idea? Is there any merit in it? The, the fundamental issue here is whether that's actually legal or not. Uh, and you mentioned the delayed first flight back to Rwanda. There was a challenge legally for that, and there will be many more. The international community, whether it's um, uh, Philippe Grande, the, the head of the UNHCR, and others have been pretty clear that they regard the UK's policy uh, as contrary to, to international law and as inhumane because you can't detain people before you've heard the circumstances um, of their asylum claim. Now, what I would say in relation to that is let's look at at the data. Um, There are, as of the end of last year, about 130,000 people in the backlog of asylum cases in the UK. But when those cases are resolved, take 2022 as an example, about 75% of of asylum claims are found to be valid and supported. Under the new policy, under the Legal Migration Bill, you will be sent to Rwanda 
And if your asylum claim is successful, you will be able to remain in Rwanda. There's no way back to the UK. So what we're saying is that the large number of people whose asylum claims were seen as supported legally and, and would have previously been allowed to the UK will now only be able to, to, to remain in Rwanda. So this exporting of migration policy, which the UK is not the only example of, and we can perhaps touch on Australia, which, which has had um, a controversial policy of putting people back into Papua New Guinea and Nauru, uh, this this has become uh, with the EU on Turkey with Syrian migrants and dealing with Libyan militias. These are part of a toolbox of ways of trying to stem the tide uh, by pushing people back. My contention would be that uh, this is um, this is futile and it's not necessary, and I don't think it's going to deter people, and I don't think it's going to provide value for money. Do you think the idea behind that particular policy is not so much that they actually they the government actually look at it as a realistic prospect that they are going to do on a major scale or are they doing it almost like a kind of public relations type mm-hmm. exercise to say to migrants this is what will happen if you come to the UK via an irregular route you will be dispatched to a country miles away from where you wanted to go therefore don't come here. That's an excellent question and actually you could argue that maybe the audience for the government's messaging is not the migrants it's the UK public mm-hmm. uh, and there's been a lot of accusations of, of popularism particularly around you know, these, these very visual images of, uh, of the Prime Minister noting that this policy is one of his five kind of key pillars on which the government will be, will be judged on. I think but, you mentioned in relation to Australia that he actually used a poster campaign with shark-infested waters. To yes, and, and the slogan, no chance, which means you're going to be eaten if you come from Afghanistan to Australia, which seems to me, I mean, heartless and actually rather silly. But we can talk about migrant motivations in a second. But what I would say is you know, the criticism that's come of, of the government in relation to the podium with stop the boats as a slogan on is, is it, it doesn't really amount to a policy or a plan. It's more of a plea. And um, when, you, when, you, when you look at the, the accusations, again, of, of the Home Secretary's been accused of dog whistle approach, saying 100 million people are trying to get to the UK, 100 million refugees, that's just not supported uh, by, by the data. The total number of refugees in the world may well be accurate on UN figures, but they're not all trying to get to the UK. The vast majority of refugees remain close to the countries in which they have fled from. We've got to begin with less populist slogans and a, a, not a kind of an us or them. We all agree that there is an increase in asylum claims, but actually... The last three years post-Brexit have seen the largest movement of refugees since World War II to the UK, predominantly from Ukraine, uh, from Afghanistan and Hong Kong as well coming here. And that shows the UK's compassion. And I think having a sensible asylum policy, data-driven, which works on serious and organised crime, but has the ability to process real claims of need, is not beyond the wit of the UK government. I think stopping every boat in the channel is. So just want to kind of delve into that a little bit more, because... What motivates them, firstly, I guess, to, to come to the UK is for some reason the UK perceived internationally as being this sort of ideal place that people want to come to. And secondly, the, this question around, you, you said you didn't believe in unchecked migration, there does need to be some control. So I'm, I just want to kind of get into a little bit more to, to detail about what, what you see as being a workable, affordable system that governments and the wider public would, would accept. I think firstly on the question of motivation, which is linked very much to deterrence, because the whole point about tough, harsh as they're seen policies is the belief that that will translate into less people coming. So I think this is very important. If you look at uh, asylum claims going from you know twenty to forty-five thousand in one year, etc., that you're not trying to stop every boat. What you're saying is, if we have tough policies, they won't try in the first place. Numbers numbers will fall off. So a couple of things about that. I think the first thing is, the Home Office themselves uh, have acknowledged that. 
They just don't know whether deterrence is going to work in relation to the Rwanda policy. What we do know is if you take the 45,000 number from 2022, is that the Rwandan asylum capacity is about 200, 220 a year. So if there's 200 people a year going to be processed through this scheme and 45,000 people are coming, that means there's a 0.4% chance of you being deported to Rwanda. So I would question, putting aside the whole question of value for money, and there's some fascinating statistics of others who have, have deported people to Rwanda, including the Israelis deported 4,000 sub-Saharan African migrants to Rwanda, and a year later the UN could only find 19 of them still in Rwanda. So people would just move again. Putting that to one side, when you speak to uh, asylum seekers, and then through my work we've spoken to Syrians and Afghans and Iranians and Nigerians and others, um, as of the Home Office of course, in their own Home Office analysis, the top seven reasons for attempting to illegally enter the UK, the UK's policies or welfare or job opportunities is not one of them. Uh, that most uh, migrants um, making very difficult journeys to the UK don't have time to study the comparative benefits of, of, of asylum in different mm. European countries. So I think we, are, we need to look at why people are coming. They're coming for family reunification in many cases. And with the work we've done in Sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia, the harsh policies, even the dangers of getting there, crossing the Sahara, crossing uh, you know, into Greece on boats, because the channel is, is small compared to the journey they've done to get there, that fear is not something that stops people from coming. So the second part of my slightly lengthy question was, what is the alternative? And when I talk about an alternative, I mean an affordable practical and, crucially, politically acceptable alternative? I think the, this centres around this notion of there need to be safe and secure routes for people to claim asylum. Now, that shouldn't be beyond the wit of us to, to think, how do we work with the UN refugee system, with our own representation overseas, to create mechanisms that allow us to process individuals in source countries? My feeling is by the time people get to the channel, it's too late for that. So... Uh, we look to, whether it's the border force or the navy or others, and say it's all got to be done here. It's too late. We need to be understanding the push and pull factors at source and working with domestic governments to address the issues, because these issues, as I mentioned, are going to grow. And what I'd like to sort of just touch on in relation to that as well is we need migrants in the UK and in Europe. And as we saw from the post-Brexit period with the shortages in low-skilled and low-paid labour, resulting in, in issues from fruit pickers to, to lorry drivers... Uh, this is only going to grow over time. And one of the, the more established data sets, obviously, is demographic. In, in, the, in Europe, we are going to stabilise our population, about 500 million, and we are going to, as a result of an ageing population, have 50 million people out of the workforce. And the ratio of people working to people supporting, I mean, look at the crisis in France now over pension reform, the states just can't afford to pay people for this long. We're going to need migrant labour to pick up many, many of these jobs. Now, at the same time that we have a 50 million person shortfall in Europe, sub-Saharan Africa between now and 2050 will produce 1.3 billion new individuals, including 130 million plus in North Africa alone. If we think that deals done with Rwanda or Turkey or Libya are going to, to, to be a comprehensive solution to what we essentially need, which is managed migration, by which I mean understanding the skills gap. And what's very interesting is I think there's a much wider appreciation in the British public now, after the politicisation of Brexit, that actually managed migration to meet skill shortfalls and grow economic GDP is a positive, net positive for the UK. And if we have that discussion about our future needs longer term, rather than just react with these slightly desperate sounding pleas and very, very cost ineffective solutions, then we will start to be prepared for a multi-generational challenge, challenge with a small C, 
where it's not a threat, it's also an opportunity because we require increased skills in Europe. And as we tie this whole subject, which is why it's absolutely fascinating to discuss, into broader issues, not just around conflicts and instability, which are much greater driver uh, of asylum seeking than, than beneficiary policies in, in, in countries like the UK, but things like climate. So that nexus between climate and conflict, resource scarcity, people are going to move out of absolute necessity. Not because they've come here to take our jobs, or but they haven't got anywhere to live, they haven't got any water or food, and this is only going to increase. You, you talk about managed migration, you talk about skills gap, the labour shortages. Give me a sense, if you can, so if we take, for example, say Syria, so it would follow your suggestion, recommendation, that the UK were to establish some kind of monitoring system whereby we had staff out in that area, in that country, being able to assess people before they get as far as Calais or wherever it might be. Is that workable? Would, would local governments tolerate such a system? I would say that in order to address challenges like Syria... Um, and we look what, what, essentially what the EU did. It did a deal with Turkey, paid six billion. Uh, a lot of people still languishing in Greek islands who, who can't get any further. Uh, that was a stopgap measure. But what it makes me think is that if we've got last year a hundred, sorry, a million asylum seekers in Europe, which forty-five thousand came to the UK, we need a collaborative regime where we are talking amongst ourselves, burden sharing, discussing relative. Now the problem where the UK is currently, is we don't have those relationships in place. So everyone does their own thing. And obviously the accusations in the past is that countries in Europe didn't stop people because they were quite happy to just facilitate them going on to Germany or to Sweden or to the UK um, because no one wants them. Now, that raises very challenging questions of what to do. What I, what I can say is those numbers are very likely to increase. I mentioned earlier the largest refugee influx in the UK since World War II but our response is often highly political. It's not based on humanitarian need or, or human rights considerations. A lot of accusations, of course, that uh, the Ukrainians have, been, have received preferential treatment because of the geostrategic importance of the Ukraine conflict. Of course, I'm not advocating that we shouldn't be compassionate towards Ukrainians, but it's quite hard to compare that to uh, the approach of, uh, of the UK towards other migrant populations or asylum populations who are problematized, often based on the origin of, uh, of the source country rather than their need. We in the UK, it's interesting, I, I, I was asking someone just the other day, you know, what percentage of people in the UK do you think uh, are foreign-born? And the actual answer is, is 14%, uh, which is about the same as the US and about the same as Spain, but less, less than Germany, 16%, less than, than Switzerland, 30%. Um, so we, it's not as if we don't have the capacity uh, to, to absorb others. Uh, and there's also an absolute necessity because more people are going to come. And if our answer is to detain people, unnecessary deaths in the Mediterranean and the Channel, that doesn't feel like the most appropriate response. And locking people up on old army camps and cruise liners and campsites in the UK is not a sustainable solution. The vast majority of people are not looking to come to the UK and shop at Boots. That's not why they're here. They just haven't got any other options. And what's very interesting when you look at the literature on this thing is the further people go away, the less likely they are to ever return home. And I think we've got to get into our, into our thinking that this is not somehow a craven, self-interested bunch of individuals who've come to take what's rightfully ours. These are in the majority of these people are desperate and need our support. And the numbers are relatively small. If you go into the regions of Africa and, and the Middle East, the millions of people... Uh, that are in, are in, are, are need our help there. The irony, of course, 
is that we don't have sufficient international aid funding to keep people close to their conflict, support them, getting them out of camps and into employment, which probably, more than anything else, we need to get people working. When people work, they generate income, they put their children in school, they invest, um, they remain where they are. When we put people in camps or ships or behind wire, etc., they're, they're not productive. Even our own policies here in the UK are to stop people working while they're, while they're looking for asylum. People want to work. And when you do work, you have increased fiscal resources that allow you one day to consider returning home, to demine your house, to, to rebate your roof where it's been destroyed. If you're kept impoverished, marginalised or underground as a result of a hostile asylum system, you will remain in the UK impoverished, not contributing economically, not able to return home. That seems to me the, the worst of both worlds. I want to finish, Alistair, if I can, by you touched on it a couple of moments ago when you referred to the pressure that climate change will bring. Most of the issues that we've been talking about so far have come about as a result of conflict, whether that's in Ukraine, Afghanistan, Syria. But you, we know that the big issue which faces everyone is the pressure on climate and people's inability to sustain life in parts of Africa and other parts of the world, and what that might mean in terms of their need to, to move away, just to, to carry on living. I guess the question is, this problem that we already have and we're already kind of addressing and talking about, to what degree do you think this is going to become the kind of defining issue for the 21st century as the climate issues become more intense? With climate-impacted migration, we're going to see movement rural to urban initially in, in countries that are not in the UK. Um, and so it, it, it won't happen overnight. We're not suddenly going to see... Uh, a huge wave of people arriving. But, and again, I think this is a, a good description, a friend of mine said, it's not like we're having a, a wave of migrant uh, issues. The tide's coming in. And that, as you, anyone who knows who's been to the sea, it doesn't, it, you can't, def there's no exact moment when you see when the tide's coming, it just gradually happens, a trickle becomes a flood, etc. And I think the stopgap measures that we've talked about, uh, if we know that that wave of humanity is in fact a tidal wave, which is likely to be enduring, then whether it's policies of livelihood generation in source countries, whether it's engaging constructively with partners rather than getting a transactional basis. I mean, if you look at the EU on Turkey, the UK and Rwanda, it's transactional. We are abrogating our moral commitments and monetizing them. We're paying Rwanda uh, to take our refugees. That doesn't feel to me like a considered data-driven approach to something which is going to challenge us all. So the one thing that I think links migration and climate so well is it's a shared problem mm. and a zero-sum mentality and it's worth saying on our, on our politics not just the uk politics on brexit but our global politics on great state competition on how do we confront china how do we confront russia it's all us and them and this narrative has it runs up against this i think aspiration that people thought as we went into the 21st century we will be able to work collaboratively on shared problems things like the pandemic showed us the need to work together but coming up hard against that, to use my tide analogy, is this countervailing force of, I've got to look out for myself, I'm separating out from others. Uh, these problems cannot be separated out, uh, not least because people will then ship the problem to their neighbour, and you won't actually stop the flow, just redirect it. And that will create even more tension and conflict between individual states. So I think, I guess my, you know, working in areas of instability around the world, I've been depressed to see less cooperation on issues that are of shared concern. And I think that should worry us all. Migration is simply one of many issues that require 
a joined up response in a world that increasingly is becoming polarised and that should concern us. So Alistair on that rather downbeat assessment of what is clearly a very grave situation I wonder whether you could leave us with some cause for potential optimism through the work that ARC has been doing where you've seen examples no matter how small which give us some indication of a practical way that people can address this problem rather than just relying on state solutions. There are, and I certainly wouldn't want to end on a downbeat note. So perhaps two examples, if I may. One from the region, from where, where, where asylum seekers and refugees come from, and one to do with integration in Europe and a possible examples of where things have worked out well. So during the pandemic, I, I was working with Palestinian refugees in Lebanon, and they are very innovative, and they understand their local market conditions better than us. And they came to me and said, we would like some money uh, as a grant uh, to develop a uh, PPE manufacturing uh, machine. We're going to import the machinery from Saudi Arabia and Germany, and we are going to split the money we make. Half we will give away free, the masks, to poor refugees. The other half we will sell on the market because there's a need. And because they're extremely entrepreneurial, they made this work. They essentially then paid back the money for the equipment. And then when, the, when there was a surfeit of, of face masks, but there was a shortage of sanitary pads and, and, and diapers on the market, they just retooled the machinery. And when you give people the tools of the trade, and people aren't looking for handouts, they're looking for opportunities, whether they're in source countries, as I say, or they're, they're in Europe. And I, I would comment in, in, in closing, many of the colleagues I worked with from Syria, particularly in Turkey, many of whom took uh, irregular routes through Greece and into Europe, today they are coders in Sweden who have mastered the language. They are rappers in Toronto. A very, very good friend of mine uh, wrote the first uh, history of homosexuality in Syria in Swedish. I mean, people just want the opportunity to be themselves. And when someone in that particular case, when they're fleeing persecution uh, and a lack of opportunity, and we can give that to them, they want to move on from state support at the earliest possible opportunity. And the evidence from generations of migration to the UK the Windrush generation and others, demonstrates that people just want an opportunity. As I said earlier, 14% foreign-born population of the UK. The UK is more than able to support and cope with the current asylum challenges we face. If we can link those to economic models that are linked to skills, that we work with the private sector so employers are involved, and we move beyond an us and them to a shared challenge mentality, we can certainly rise to the challenge. Alistair Harris from Art Group, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you very much for having me. You can find out more about Alistair, Arc and the work that they're doing by following the links which are available on the show notes, which are on the Hudson Sandler website, hudsonsandler.com. You can also find links to other episodes of the Fair and Square podcast series and more information about Hudson Sandler's work in the UK and around the world. You can follow Hudson Sandler on Twitter, at Hudson Sandler. But until the next episode, from me, Adam Batstone, goodbye for now. To find out more about Hudson Sandler, our team, our culture and our thinking, visit our website, hudsonsandler.com. Hudson Sandler.